tells the story of the world and of our lives. Sometimes that history goes bump in the night. Broadcasting from the center of oddity and the supernatural in Central Florida, it's the History Goes Bump podcast. Hello, you spectacular people. Welcome to this 55th episode of the History Goes Bump podcast. Ghost tours for the theater of the mind. I am your host, Diane. And this is Denise. And today we're going to talk about the old Charleston jail. And we like jails. Jails have such great histories. And of course, along with those comes a lot of hauntings. This show is brought to us by our spectacular crew member, Jesse. Thanks so much for suggesting this historic site. This is quite the location, Denise. I can't wait to share it with people. Yes, yes, yes. Before we do that, I do want to point you over to our website, historygoesbump.com. It's got everything you could want to know about the show. You could shop in our emporium there. You can find the blog there, our most recent shows, our archives, where you can listen to the podcast, how you can find us on social media, how you can subscribe to the newsletter, and also donate to the show. Denise, if they want to send us some feedback, make some suggestions about other locations for us to check out, where can they do that? They can do that at historygoesbump at gmail.com. We do want to welcome another member to the Spooktacular crew. Jeffrey joined us this week. Yes, welcome, Jeffrey. And Denise, we got two more five-star reviews over at iTunes. Woohoo! And these people did it in such a way where they didn't leave any comments. They just did the five stars. So it's that easy, folks. You don't have to leave a comment if you don't want to. You just go over there, you hit the stars, and you're good. We do want to remind you that we are running a contest until July 20th of 2015. The prize is a History Ghost Bump logo t-shirt in your size and choice of color as well as a signed copy of my first novel, which is The Shattering. In order to be entered into this drawing, we will draw for one person. You either need to sign up for the newsletter over at the website, join the Spooktacular crew over at Facebook, the group page there, or send us an email at the address that Denise just gave you a little bit ago and let us know your name. And then we will draw for one person. And of course, as we mentioned on the last podcast, if you do all three, you get... Three entries. That's right. So you got better chances to do that. And I can tell you, we've got a couple of ladies down in Australia who are set for three names to be in that drawing. Yes, they are. Our Aussies love us. And we love them. Yes, we do. And we love all of our listeners. Absolutely. We have awesome listeners. I was just commenting over at the History Goes Bump fan page about how great our fans are and how touched I am by the emails that we get. And they kind of bring goosebumps when you read them sometimes. And it's not just because people are telling us about a creepy experience they've had. It's because they're sharing their lives with us. And, you know, one of the things about doing a podcast, Denise, is it's a very intimate thing. People are putting us in their ears. Ew. Yeah, it is kind of (laughs) waxy in here. Could you guys get some Q-tips out? (laughs) No, No, but it is a very intimate thing for people to put us in their ears. It's like we're right there talking right to you. You, who's listening right now, we're talking to you. We are the voices in your head. Exactly, which is kind of a scary thing. But we appreciate you doing that. (laughs) And we know there are thousands of shows to listen to. And you've chosen to listen to ours right now. So we do appreciate that. Yes, thank you very much. We do love our listeners, even though we get a little lighthearted about it. But we do love our listeners in our ears. And you are not (laughs) Q-tips. Well, we talked about Alcatraz a couple of shows ago, Denise. 
You ready to go back to jail again? No, no, don't take me. Yes, I'm ready to go. Well, you know, this is located in one of the cities we haven't been to that we're dying to get to, which I have a feeling. <laughs> Maybe not necessarily dying. To you know, I always <laughs> use that term so loosely I'd rather and I get, shouldn't. I'd rather get the kind of living, but, you know, <laughs> to go visit the dying or the dead. Anyway, I have a feeling this is going to be on our list next year when we take our road trip. Yep, we're doing a road trip to the Carolinas, and this one is going to be in Charleston, South Carolina. All right, let's get started. Sounds good. If you would like to support the show, please visit our Patreon page at patreon.com forward slash history goes bump. Or perhaps you just want to make a one-time donation. Click the donate button on our website at historygoesbump.com. In London's St. Pancras Old Church's Cemetery stands a tree that is known as the Hardy Tree. The tree was named for the author, Thomas Hardy, who incidentally is one of my favorite. In the 1860s, the London Rail Line was in need of more room, and it was decided that part of the cemetery would be the perfect spot to route one of the lines. The bodies needed to be exhumed and moved. The job was dumped on an architectural firm's lowest employee who just happened to be the future famous author, Thomas Hardy. Hardy moved the bodies, but he was left with another issue, the hundreds of headstones left in the yard. Hardy noticed an ash tree off to the side that was not near the future railway. He decided to move the headstones over to the ash tree. He placed the tombstones in circles around the tree. Many were practically on top of each other. As the years have passed, the ground around the tree has absorbed many of the stones, and the tree itself has grown around some of the gravestones. It creates a stark image of life and death melding together. And one thing is for sure, the hardy tree certainly is odd. Are you afraid of the dark? This day in history. On this day, July 9th, in 1869, the corncob pipe was invented in Missouri. Henry Tibba was a Dutch immigrant who was a woodworker. On July 9th, a local farmer came to him with a corncob that he had whittled the middle out of and asked Tibbe if it was possible for him to use his lathe to refine the process. Tibbe gave it a try, and soon the corncob pipe was so popular that the Dutchman discontinued all other woodworking and focused entirely on making pipes. The corncob pipes were cheap, although many considered them unelegant. Corncobs were dried for two years, and then the lathe was used to hollow them out into bowl shapes. The outside was lacquered, usually after being dipped in plaster. Shanks made from pine wood were inserted into the bowls. Corncob pipes are still popular today because they require no break-in period. The Missouri Meerschaum Company is the world's oldest and largest manufacturer of cool, sweet-smelling corncob pipes, They've been doing it since 1869. The company was founded by Tibbe and his son. The name Meerschaum was derived from the German word for sea foam, and it is the name for Turkish clay that is used in more expensive pipes. 
Tepe tacked on the Missouri part as a koi play to elevate the pipe's appeal. So next time you see a Popeye cartoon, you know where the corncob pipe came from. You're listening to History Goes Bump. The old jail in Charleston, South Carolina is an architecturally beautiful building that dates back to the early 1800s. The jail has seen its share of thieves, murderers, and even pirates. A stone building that has stood for centuries tends to carry far more than just memories of years gone by. The spirits of those who were locked inside the structure still seem to resonate within those walls. Death may not have been the end for those condemned. Do some of these people still carry on in the afterlife? Let's explore the history and hauntings of Charleston's old jail. You know, a thought just came to me. That would be horrible to be a jail ghost. Because you get, you know, you get locked up for life and locked up for afterlife, I guess. You're always in prison. It's a fascinating point you're making there. I listen to Darkness Radio, which is hosted by Dave Schrader. And one of the things that he talks about a lot is when, because he does a lot of paranormal investigating, and he often wonders that same thing about why do ghosts pick certain places? Obviously, they can't possibly pick some of the places they haunt, because who would want to spend the rest of your afterlife or what have you either in a cemetery or in a creepy old hot jail. I mean, these are not places like you'd really want to hang out. And asylums. Oh, yeah. Go figure. Yep. The city of Charleston is one of the original cities in America, dating back to 1670. English colonists were the first white men to come to the area, and in 1680 they officially laid out the plan for the city that was similar to other cities with block squares plotted out. That kind of reminds me of what we saw up in Savannah, Mm -hmm. the block squares. The city was originally named Charlestown in honor of King Charles II. The city was a prime location as a seaport, but it eventually grew even more successful in other economical ways. Rice, cotton, and indigo all contributed to that success. Charleston was long considered the capital of the South. Charleston also holds the inenviable position of being the location for the start of the Civil War. The first shots of the war were fired at Fort Sumter in Charleston. Charleston took a long while to recover from the devastating effects of the war. Trade and industry helped the city to thrive again. When Charleston was initially plotted out, a four-acre square of land was set aside for public use, upon which several buildings were later constructed. Those included a poorhouse, a workhouse for runaway slaves, a hospital, and later a jail. The old jail was built in 1802 and was four stories tall. A two-story octagon tower was built atop the four stories. Robert Mills was an architect known for building fireproof buildings, and in 1822 he designed a fireproof wing with cells for the jail. Denise, I think we know about these fireproof buildings. How many theaters have we heard that were supposedly built fireproof? A lot. And how many of them would burn (laughs) completely down? A lot. (laughs) (laughs) I don't think I would have taken their, hey, this building's fireproof, literally. This wing was later replaced in 1855 by architects Barbeau and Sale with an octagonal wing. They made other alterations to the building, which included the addition of the Romanesque revival details. And that's what's really cool about this building. It looks like a castle on the top. Yeah, it's very, very cool. This type of architecture is known for its towers and round arches and dates back to medieval times. An earthquake badly damaged the building in 1886 and the tower and top story were removed. 
The jail housed a variety of prisoners, and many times there were far more prisoners within the walls than the building was meant to hold. Up to 300 prisoners were held sometimes in a structure meant for 130. This made bad conditions even worse. Sickness would wreak havoc in the building. The historic records indicate that during the time that the jail was open, up to 10,000 people died there either from injury or illness or because they were condemned to die. That is a lot of people. The jail was in use for 211 years, closing its doors for prisoners in 1939. Criminals were denied food, whipped, and shackled. Jail was definitely not a pleasant place back then. Oh, not at all. The people locked up in the Charleston jail were guilty of many different crimes. Some were just common thieves and others were murderers. Still others were civil rights activists. Denmark Vesey was one such prisoner. He was a freed slave who organized meetings in his home and collected guns and ammunition for a rebellion that he was planning. 9,000 slaves were to join forces to fight for rights and freedom, but several of the slaves worried that they would fail and be in bigger trouble than they already were, so they betrayed the other conspirators. Denmark was arrested and incarcerated at the Charleston jail. He was tried and hanged along with 35 other blacks. His revolt would have been the largest. Instead of bringing freedom, laws were tightened on blacks. Civil War soldiers served time at the jail. Members of the 54th Massachusetts were some of those who did time. That regiment was made famous in the movie Glory. Other federal prisoners were held during the war along with Confederate soldiers. Jacques Alexander Tardy was a pirate who lived from 1767 to 1827. He was known as Tardy the Pirate. <laughs> That's because he was always late to the gold. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> No, that, that's, that's not real history. That was just me. He was a small man who walked with a cane. Tardy was born in France but fled to Hispaniola with his parents during the French Revolution. The Haitian Revolution forced the family to America where they lived in Philadelphia. Tardy took to the trade of being a tinsman, but later he joined Captain John Smith on the USS Congress. He would later try to steal the captain's valuables and sell them to the crew, and he was publicly flogged. He loved poison and had a penchant for poisoning those with whom he had issues. Captain John Smith seems to be his first victim. Later, he sailed aboard the Maria for a return to Charleston, South Carolina, and he poisoned the captain and seven other crew by putting arsenic in their hash. Tardy blamed the ship's cook who was hung for the crime. The same thing happened aboard another ship named the Regulator, and again, Tardy blamed the cook. A confidant turned him in, but he was only tried for conspiracy and served seven years at Walnut Street Prison. He later tried to steal a boat and was caught, and at this time he was put in Charleston Jail, where he served two years. He would later go on to try to take over another ship with some other men and ended up slitting his own throat in the captain's quarters to avoid capture. So this was basically a pirate who just couldn't get himself his own ship. Nope, definitely not. America's first female serial killer was housed at the old jail. Lavinia Fisher was born in 1793. She married a man named John, and the two ran a hotel in Charleston named Six Mile Wayfarer House because it was six miles outside of town. It was a popular place for men to stay at while traveling. The problem is that these men never checked out. They just disappeared. The missing men were reported to the police, and they began to notice that all the men could be traced back to the Six Mile Wayfarer. Lavinia and John were good at what they did. The authorities could find no evidence or wrongdoing. And the town loved the couple, so the police just dropped the investigation. Sometime later, local townspeople headed over to the hotel, but they found no wrongdoing. Things changed for Lavinia and John. 
when a nice young man stopped by to see if there was a room for the night. Lavinia said they were full, but invited him in for tea. He introduced himself as John Peoples, and he chatted with Lavinia for quite a while, giving her far too many details about his life. He didn't like tea, so he had left it untouched, and when Lavinia left the room, he dumped it out. Probably in a potted plant. <laughs> yeah, which died very shortly thereafter. <laughs> I don't doubt it. She returned and told John they had a vacant room. After getting inside his room, John had a weird feeling, you know, that sixth sense that tells you something's just not right. Lavinia's husband had stared at him all night in an unsettling way as he chatted up Lavinia. He also felt he had shared too much and perhaps he might be robbed. He decided to sleep in a chair by the door rather than the bed, and good thing, because in the middle of the night he was awakened by a loud noise. He was shocked to see the bed disappearing into a hole. John jumped out the window and rode his horse to the police, who arrested Lavinia and her husband. And apparently some tales say that that hole was a pit that had spikes in it. Ew. Good thing he was not in that bed. Now, if you were in Florida, that would just be a sinkhole. <laughs> yes, it would. That was no wrongdoing. That was just Florida. <laughs> that was just Florida. The beds disappear. No, hopefully not. Knock on wood. When the police searched the hotel, they found Charleston's murder castle. There were secret passages and mechanisms that opened floorboards. A sleeping herb was found, and police believe those herbs were used to put victims to sleep. The remains of 100 people were found in the basement, along with the belongings of many people who were not the Fishers. John and Lavinia were tried and sentenced to hang, but they were given a chance to repeal. As they waited in the old jail, they hatched a plan to escape. They made a rope from linens, and John shimmied down first. He broke the rope, and Lavinia was stuck in the cell. He couldn't leave without her, so he returned to the jail, and they were put under better security. They were hung on the gallows behind the jail on February 18, 1820. John went quietly, but not Lavinia. She ranted and raved and refused to walk to the gallows, so she was carried. Her last words were, quote, If you have a message you want to send to hell, give it to me. I'll carry it, end quote. She flung herself off the gallows and hit the crowd who were stunned by the awful snare that spread across her dying visage. Historians have never found any evidence that 100 bodies were in the old house. Only two bodies were discovered, and many believe that the Fishers were part of a group that merely robbed people. But that doesn't explain why so many men went missing. Yeah, so when I was reading this, there's the legend, which is basically what we just shared with everybody, Denise. And historians say when they look back in all the legal books, I mean, you'd think if they found 100 bodies in somebody's basement, this would be somewhere in detail. But you can't find it anywhere. All these men went missing. So the only thing I can think of is the bodies weren't there at the house. There's also word that they worked with a couple other highwaymen and that they would rob people, not necessarily at the inn that they had opened, but outside of it somewhere along the road or something. So or who knows what the truth is? They both maintain that they were innocent, but Lavinia doesn't seem very innocent to me. No, flinging herself out with snares, taking messages to hell. I mean, if you're planning on going to hell, you probably figure there's a reason why you're going there. The building was vacant for 61 years after it officially closed. The American College for the Building Arts purchased the building in 2000 and began renovations. Much of the original structure still stands today. There are several tour companies that offer ghost tours of the old jail. They are listed in our show notes today. And the reason there are ghost tours is because, of course, some spirits of prisoners who met their ends at the jail have decided to stay. And, of course, we mentioned 10,000 people possibly died here. So you've got all kinds of spirits that could be happening here. Lots of energy there. 
Even when the building was vacant, cops walking by reported hearing doors slamming and screams. As occurs with renovations in haunted structures, many weird things happened starting in 2000 when restoration efforts were begun. The apparition of a jailer carrying a rifle was seen by workers on the third floor. They witnessed the spirit walk right through the cell bars. Spectacular crew member Jessie, who suggested this location to us, has been to the old jail and had her own unexplained experiences there. She told us that she was on a ghost tour at the jail and had a panic attack in one of the rooms. She also felt as though something grabbed her in a room where POWs of the Civil War were kept. Someone else on one of the ghost tours remarked in a review that, I did see something very strange inside the cell, a large ball of light flying up a set of stairs. Other people who have taken the Bulldog Jail tour claim that they have been pushed, slapped, touched, choked, and scratched. The jail is stuffy and hot, but at times people report seeing their breath and feeling an icy cold draft. There is reportedly the ghost of a little girl that has been seen, so apparently this jail was like many others and housed children at times. A black man in ragged clothes has been witnessed wandering the cell blocks. A heavy iron door fell off its hinges. A cop was investigating an alarm in 2006, and when he arrived, he found the back door open. He drew his gun and went inside, climbing the spiral staircase. When he got to the third floor, he said he felt as though his arms, quote, were wrapped in plastic wrap, end quote. Lavinia Fisher was reportedly buried in the potter's field next to the jail, and instead of heading off to hell, she seems to have decided to stay at the old jail in the afterlife. Right after she was hung, residents claimed they saw Lavinia's face behind the bars of the cell she once occupied. Lavinia insisted on being hung in her wedding dress, and her apparition is seen inside the jail wearing a wedding dress. The dress was white and bright red. The Lemure team from Asheville, North Carolina, investigated the old jail in 2007. They were the first paranormal investigators invited to the old jail. And for our listeners who are into other paranormal shows, you probably will recognize these names. A couple of the members of the Lemure team included Joshua P. Warren and Micah Hanks. They did a full weekend investigation, and some of the findings that they had were Their paranormal PC was set up in the room called the Octagon, where some of the worst criminals, including the Fishers, were kept. After running undisturbed for an hour, it recorded substantial deviations in magnetism with no evidence of conventional cause. Also, numerous people witnessed orb-like anomalies with their naked eyes, and others, primarily females, witnessed cloudy forms, either black or white, swiftly moving down halls. This was most prominent in the basement and led to an outstanding event around 4, 4.30 a.m. Saturday morning. Around 10 people, including Mark R. Jones and Revel Sinclair, monitored the basement as the author operated a strobe light. Suddenly, one observer exclaimed she saw a shadowy humanoid form. Others gasped as they saw it as well and were overcome with emotion. The author shut off the strobe light, at which time he witnessed a dark silhouette block light entering the building through a few long vertical cracks in the facing wall. When he turned the strobe back on, there was nothing visible blocking his view of the light. Around midnight, the author and several other team members heard the distinct sound of chains being dragged across the floor of the octagon. All lights were turned on, and though nothing was seen, the sound was extremely pronounced. It lasted less than 30 seconds, and no one was able to document the sound. It never occurred again. And Denise, I also was reading another article about the old jail, and it linked to a woman's EVPs that she had hosted over on Facebook. And as I listened to a couple of them, 
usually EVPs, I don't hear a whole lot, but they did seem to have some other voice mixed in there. Oh, they wow. They were very interesting. Ghost hunters visited the old jail in 2012, and one of their cameramen was scratched. The spirits don't seem so nice at the old jail. Is that because the spirits belong to those who were corruptible in life? Could it be possible that people are just imagining these events because of the creepy nature of the jail? Has the stone captured the elements of the past and now what is seen as residual? Is the old Charleston jail haunted? That is for you to decide. I don't know. Based on all these experiences, particularly on the the Jessie's experiences, because we know her and I believe she wouldn't lie about it. There's something going on there. Absolutely. And I did almost go off into a Disney moment when I was ending our, our program here where it said those who were corruptible in life in the corruptible mortal stage. <laughs> That's exactly what I was thinking when I wrote that. Ooh, we're one-minded. Look out. And you know something else that goes along with that? And what Denise is referencing is the dialogue that goes with the Haunted Mansion attraction at the Magic Kingdom. Well, I pulled a little something from that dialogue, which is something that we ended up doing yesterday, and we might as well share it with our listeners. <laughs> we don't usually talk too much about our personal lives, but July 8th in 1995, Denise and I walked down the aisle in a church, and we made vows to each other. And in this country, they weren't legal, so they basically were us just making vows to each other, but the state could care less that we had done that. Or the country, or... Yes. And the other legality. But the state of Florida last year approved gay marriage. And now, as everybody knows, the entire country is now accepting gay marriage because of the Supreme Court. And so we'd already planned to do this. And so we were going to do it under Florida law. And now we get to do it under the whole country's law. But yesterday what we did, since it was our 20th anniversary, we wanted to renew our vows to each other. And then get our legal paperwork so that Denise makes an honest woman out of me. Oh, whatever. But anyway, what I have dubbed the ceremony is there's no turning back now. <laughs> so everybody's congratulating us on their, their, on our there's no turning back now ceremony rather than the renewal. But hey, it comes from the Haunted Mansion dialogue. Which is very cool. And we do History Goes Bump. But yeah, so Diane, and that was right after we got our license. She became really bossy and dubbed it the No Turning Back Now ceremony. Ah, look out. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> You're trapped forever. So oh, I don't anyway, mind. we thought we would share that with everybody that we went ahead and did that yesterday. So, so now, now we've now been official. married for a whole day, <laughs> according Woo-hoo! to the country. <laughs> 20 years in a day, according to, to us. To so. us. All right. Well, we want to thank you guys for joining us for this show. Our next one, we will be joined by Patrick Keller of the Big Seance Podcast. We're going to be talking about the Myrtles Plantation, which I had said on the other podcasts in New Orleans, it's near Baton Rouge. So those are pretty far apart from each other. So sorry about that little misstatement I made. We'll forgive you. But now because you made it, you have to take me to New Orleans anyway. Well, I, that's not a problem because I want to go to I want to go to see this and I want to go to New Orleans as well. I want to okay. see a lot of stuff in we Louisiana. We need to go see see some of our friends in Louisiana as well. Exactly. Master Edward said he'd put out one of those spreads on the picnic table if we came. Those boils or whatever. Oh, God, that'd be so good. It's going to be a good trip. And all you got to do is take me to Cafe Du and get me beignets and I am a happy girl. Yes, you are. And I'll get some more hickory coffee. <laughs> All right, you guys, I have been your host, Diane. And this has been Denise. You take care now. Bye-bye.
sociable. Drop the chain rattling, neck biting, and shape shifting, and join us on Facebook and Twitter at History Goes Bump. Like the page and follow us.